ask for your help in identifying ourselves in that much greater story this morning. God, uh, especially, uh, we thank you for making uh, this so evident and so clear to us in the promise of baptism that we get to celebrate here this morning. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. This morning, we, uh, we get to celebrate a baptism this morning of, uh, of Ciel Schott. And, uh, and, and as we do, every time we, we baptize another uh, child or adult or anybody here, we, we always kind of like go through this rhythm or this routine of, of trying to figure out like what is happening here? What are we doing to try to, like I said in the prayer, understand ourselves in this much greater story. And so whenever we baptize, we say that this is about essentially three things, these waters of baptism. To answer... Uh, three questions. The first one is, when we baptize, um, why, why water? Why do we use water when we baptize? And the answer to that one is simple, because, because Jesus used water in baptism, and because water is such a perfect illustration about what's going on here. Um, it's said in an ancient document, 500 years old, in the Heidelberg Catechism, that, that just as water washes away dirt from my body, so too does the blood of Christ wash away all my soul's impurities. In other words, all my sins. Another question that often gets brought up here around encounter is, hey, when we baptize, why do we baptize babies as well? Uh, why are we going to baptize CL? She's so little and she's, she's adorable and she's cute. Don't, don't get me wrong there. But when we baptize, why don't we, why don't we maybe wait until they're a little bit older and, and baptize them then when they've had a chance to think things through a little bit more? And the answer to that one is simple. It's because baptizing babies is the perfect illustration, I believe, of, of where we are in God's story. Was that when we baptize, a child, when we baptize an infant, we don't just see that she's being signed and sealed into God's family. We see that we too are signed and sealed into God's family. That, that in a way that, that we see ourselves in Ciel when she's baptized is that just as, as she's so helpless and unable to do anything on her own spiritually, aren't we in the same boat? Spiritually, aren't we just as incapable of saving and redeeming ourselves in any way? It's such a beautiful illustration of seeing just a child be sealed into God's family because, because spiritually we're children and we need to be wrapped up in God's family and be redeemed by his blood. And lastly, I just want to say that this is an invitation. It's an invitation for uh, those of you who have been baptized to consider your own baptisms and, and what it means to be signed and sealed into God's family. It's an invitation to maybe those of you who haven't had an opportunity to be baptized, to be signed and sealed into God's family. Whether it's you or whether it's your kids, we'd love to have that conversation maybe after the service or connect uh, a little bit later throughout the week. At this time, I have the pleasure of inviting uh, CL to come on forward. And CL, you can bring your mom, Amy, as well. <laughs> and CL and Amy are going to have with them uh, Desiree, the uh, godmother, um, because this is a very much a communal act, and we all need help along the way. And I don't have my notes totally in, in front of me, but... Desiree, right? And Anne, okay, Anne, thank you so much. Wonderful. Um, we have uh, <laughs> a little technology going on here. Um, you're right. Um, 
We have a few questions to ask as you've heard about these and as we've had an opportunity to get to know each other over the past few months, so they're not going to be new to you, but this is an opportunity that you have along with family to say, hey, this is the, I'm responding to God's grace and, uh, and, and what he's doing in CL's life and, and being a part of this much greater community. So, um, Amy, on behalf of CL and your family, um, do you acknowledge... <laughs> A little restless. She can play with that, right? Um, you want to see that? There you go. We'll get it to you later, anyway. <laughs> Amy, do you prom- or do you believe that uh, that CL, as as adorable and as cute as she is, that she is actually in need of a savior? That she is sinful by nature, and she needs the grace that Jesus Christ has to offer. And along with that, um, do you believe that Jesus Christ is that savior and is the plan and promise of salvation? And do you believe that the Bible is God's inspired word and is his plan for salvation? And last, do you promise to do everything that you can so that CL grows up, always knowing that she's included, she's signed and sealed into God's gracious family? What is your answer? Right. And family and friends, um, they cannot do this on their own. So uh, we invite uh, all the family and friends, uh, whether you call Encounter Your Church Home or whether you're here for the first time, have maybe visited from another church. Um, if you find yourself in God's greater story, we invite you to respond using the answer, we do, God helping us. When I ask, do you promise to do everything that you can so that CL grows up always knowing that she's included in God's loving and gracious family? What is your answer? We do. God helping us. All right. Come on over, CL, for baptism. Honey, I'm going to put a little water on your forehead here. (laughs) CL shot. I baptize you in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. God bless you, CL, and you, Amy. Let's say a prayer together. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this amazing demonstration of what it takes to be included in your family, that you have reached to CL and to each one of us, but we're still a long ways off for you, from you and, and not knowing much anything about you. But God, you have reached down to us and have scooped us up in your loving and your gracious arms. We ask that you uh, strengthen CL for the lifelong journey of finding out more and more about who you are and finding herself in your story. Uh, God, surround her with family, with friends, with a church community that cares about her and wants to see her grow and, and be discipled, be a fully devoted follower of you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, hang on. Don't go away quite yet. We, uh, um, as a way of making good on that promise of just saying, we, we want to, to help you and be with you, to journey with your family as you, uh, as you go along on the journey. This is a, a small gift, but it's uh, just a starting point uh, about the, how we hope to, to partner with you for CL. You are so excited. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible, how every story in the Bible whispers the name of Christ. All right, well, let's welcome uh, CL to Encounter the God's Family. Yeah. Oh, man, that is just awesome. Well, hey, friends, 
let's uh, transition on into uh, a time for the message uh, here this morning. And uh, hey, just want to say a quick word to those of you who may be guests with us this morning. Um, usually it's less dusty and like demolished around here. Well, not like lately, but, you know, historically. Uh, so in the future, we're cleaning it up. There's pictures about what things are going to look like. So I just wanted to give uh, another, another word of saying, like, just kind of hang in there while we uh, create this new shared story uh, together. Also, just wanted to give a quick shout out um, to the next series that's kicking off next week. We're starting a new series called Finding God's Will. And I just, I want to give a shout out to it because um, in just preparing for this and studying through some of these Bible passages, I just get so excited. I've been so challenged and so stretched by what's coming our way that, uh, that, that I wanted to share it all with you. So if you find yourself like having asked these questions or maybe currently asking these questions about, you know, what is it that God wants from me? Where is it that God wants me? You know, do I, do I marry him? Do I break up with him? Do I stay? Do I go? Do I take the job? Do I leave the job? Do I buy the car? Do I buy the truck? Whether it's like big things or small things, um, we, we want to learn together how to find God's will. So over the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at four Bible passages that point, I think, to, to two governing truths. The, the first one is that God actually does have a plan for your life. And the second one is God wants you to know that plan even more than you do. He wants to communicate it to you. So uh, next week, Finding God's Will, if you're asking big questions about life, or if you're not, or if you think that like, hey, I've got everything all settled. I'm good. Chances are you're going to wake up one morning and realize you're just like all the rest of us who don't know what we're doing. So <laughs> next week, Finding God's Will. I also wanted to pass that along because this morning it just dovetails into this last installment of Radically Ordinary just so perfectly well. Because as, as together, we're, we're trying to figure out what it means to live this, this revolutionary kind of life, following after Jesus in, in every way and putting our hope, putting our trust in him, even if that means doing that exactly where we are, even if it means doing that in a very ordinary kind of way that doesn't look radical. radical. We're, we're trying to like figure that out figure that out together. And so this morning, just want to like clear up a misunderstanding when it comes to God's will. You see, oftentimes we think about like the center of God's will and what it means to, to live in the center of God's will. And we think, well, what's so desirable about living in the center of God's will is that, is that this is the place where it's safe. This is where the place where it's secure. This is the place where, where I'm guarded, where I'm maybe out of harm's way. And we think like nothing could be better than finding out like the center of God's will and then just, just staying there because it seems like this is the place where, where like trouble and hassle just don't seem to come our way. And so it comes up in a few different ways. Um, for instance, you might have a friend, might be you, who's like gets a text message or something that says, hey, great news, friend. I've been offered a job. It's a good job for a great company. It's decent pay. It's, it's hugely meaningful work that I'm going to be embarking on. There's just, there's just one catch. The catch is it's not in Grand Rapids. It's across the state. 
And so so even though I am thrilled to death about the work that I could be doing, the the catch to it is I have to like uproot my entire family, my uh, maybe my church family along with that. I have to like get my kids out of the schools where they've made friends. We've got to like find a new church. We've got to find new friends. And I'm just, I'm not sure about this whole thing. So, and then here the line is, I just wish that I knew God's will so that I can make the right decision. And this morning, we want to like gently push back on that and to say, maybe it's not God's will that you're trying to uncover. Maybe you're trying to uncover the, the easiest route. Maybe you're trying to like hedge your bet so you, don't, so you don't end up having to move back or make these life adjustments. But maybe, maybe we just say that it's God's will because that's what we think that Christians would or, or should say about such a big decision. Maybe, maybe if we really were looking after and pursuing God's will in our lives in a radically ordinary kind of way, maybe we'd ask an entirely, an entirely different question. Because the misconception is that at the core of finding ourselves in the center of God's will isn't that it's safe, isn't that it's secure, isn't that it's out of harm's way or that it's guarded. The, the truth of the matter, as Jesus is going to tell us in Matthew 10, is that in the center of God's will, it's risky It's dangerous, and it may even come at great personal cost. But as Jesus is going to tell us, it it is worth it. So hang in there. Let's go to Matthew chapter 10. Um, It's on the flow sheets when you came in. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, There's Bibles in the back. If you can't get to one now, just take one on the way out. We don't count them, so it's cool. Matthew 10, verse 16, starts off this way. We'll just do it a verse at a time here. I'm sending you out. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples and also us today. Where Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. I, I just want to like confess to you guys, I don't know a lot about those animals that were just listed off there. Uh, I'm not a, not a vet, and maybe even vets don't know like a ton about them, but uh, a few things that I do know about them is that it, it doesn't seem like a great plan to send sheep to wolves. Like just the kind of objectively in any other context, you would think that doesn't, I, don't, I'm not, I think that's a quick way to get shepherd's pie. I don't think that's a, a great plan. And so we think maybe Jesus, you know, who lived around shepherds and sheep a little, maybe like he knew something that, that we don't. Well, he did. He, he knew just exactly how bad of an idea it was to send sheep to wolves. You see, uh, sheep make great farm animals, I'm told, because they naturally like herd together. And when one of them gets lost and doesn't maybe follow the rest of them, um, they have two defense mechanisms. Uh, they run slowly and they yell loudly. Both of those do not mix very well, being surrounded by like wolves who would like nothing more than to eat them. And knowing the more we know about sheep, the more we, we find out that this is just like a terrible, terrible idea for Jesus to send his disciples out like sheep among wolves. So you, we might think, okay, this is maybe one of those like incredible kind of like miracle statements, miracle promises of Jesus that says, even though it's a terrible idea to send sheep among wolves, even though like objectively 
It's not a good plan. What Jesus is doing here is he's promising us that if we were to be sent out, if we listen, if we heed Jesus' words and, and we go out into those dangerous places, that, that, that he's going to protect me. Because again, the misconception about God's will is that wherever I go, as long as I'm in the center of God's will, it's safe. It's guarded. It's out of harm. Even if I find myself as a sheep among wolves, I'm going to be okay because I'm guarded and I'm out of harm's way. And then we keep reading what Jesus says in the very next line. He says to his disciples, in light of that, verse 17, be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. It won't be, uh, not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I just, I just want to like recap. Jesus says, hey, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And we think, great, that's a place where I'm going to be guarded, where I'm going to protect you. Oh, no, no. When you go out among the wolves, you will be handed over to the authorities. You will be flogged in the synagogues. It's not if, but when they hand you over. Like, this is going to happen. Regardless of the fact that you're being obedient to me and you're finding yourselves in the center of God's will, it isn't a place of safety. It isn't a place of of security, of being guarded, of being out of harm's way. It's like Jesus, he, he wants his disciples, and I think all of us listening in, to know that even if we might be at the center of God's will, it's risky, it's costly, and it may be dangerous. We hear from these words at the, at the very end here, and he says, uh, verse 19, at that time you'll be given what to say, for it's not being you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking, speaking through you. It, it's almost as if like the context maybe has, has changed. Maybe looking back, we can think about uh, another context of conversation that Jesus is having with them. You know, I look at the, hear these words, and I can think of Jesus almost... Almost as a, a field commander, like sending his, his troops into battle. And he's saying, we're going to go in. And I'm aware that even though I'm issuing this order, many of you, most of you, may not make it back. But at the tail end, but don't worry. Not because you'll be safe. Don't worry. Not because you'll be out of harm's way. Oh, no. We are going directly into harm's way. Don't worry, because the mission will continue. It should be troubling to us to hear Jesus' words of putting us in harm's way. It should be troubling us to hear that even though we may not make it, that the mission is going to go on regardless of us, of what happens to us. There's a story that David Platt tells in his book, Radical, where a lot of the content from the series comes from. It's about uh, a missionary who, who feels very much called, very much in the center of God's will, to go to the uh, Batak tribe in northern Sumatra in, in Indonesia. It's a big tribe, big group of people who are extremely hostile to outside influences, like not just ignoring them, but 
hurting them, harming them. And so this missionary goes in. Uh, it's a couple. So it's a husband and wife kind of combo team. Uh, they go in and they, and they start sharing with uh, the tribal leaders and whoever will listen about the news of Jesus Christ, about the news that, that he died and came back to life. And so that when we die, we can go, we can come back to life. And this is the best way, though not the easiest, the best way to live our lives. And the tribal leaders responded to that by capturing them and by killing them on the spot. They saw almost no fruit, no fruit of their work whatsoever, and it cost them their lives. All of the effort that it took to get them there, to train them to talk to these people, just this long legacy of of preparation up to this moment, and it all culminates in nothing, just dying. They were in the center of God's will, but it wasn't safe. It wasn't secure. They weren't guarded in any way. They certainly weren't out of harm's way. In fact, it almost looked like that was just the end of the story, as it is so often, admittedly. But, but in this case, there was another missionary who came only uh, a few years later, who, who came into the tribe, and knowing that they were very hostile, knowing what happened to the previous missionary, and going into that place, he shares the same story, that, that Jesus Christ died and came back, to the, came back from the dead, so that when you die, you can come back from the dead. And this is the best, no, not, though not the easiest, way to live your life. And the tribal leaders heard this missionary out. And this time realized this, this is the exact same story that the other missionary couple was telling us about and how, how persistent this strange group of people is. They must know what happened to the people who came before them. And so this time the tribal leader listens, converts, becomes a believer, Along with it, the entire tribe becomes a believer. And now, today, you can go into the area, the region of northern Sumatra and Indonesia, and find about three million Christians among the Batak tribe there. But the question that I have isn't about the second missionary that went in there, although there's, I mean, questions about why they would go anyway. But, but the question that I might have is, is if I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was God's will for me to go into this tribe and take my wife, take my family with me, that this is the will of God, would, would I go? You know, would I be obedient to that? Would you? But again, I mean, it should it should rattle us at least a little to find out that the will of God isn't safe, isn't secure, isn't guarded, isn't, isn't out of harm's way. But Jesus, I think his words are just as true now as when he spoke them. And I think in whatever context we find ourselves in, the words have a way of resonating in our hearts, in our lives. So I'm guessing uh, most of us in the room don't feel like it's God's will. And not just in a resistant kind of way, like legitimately, I don't think that I'm called to northern Sumatra. I don't think I'm called to Central America. I don't think I'm called to pretty much anywhere except for like the work that I have in front of me right here. And the words of Matthew 10 that Jesus says, I think just resonate just as true. Like friends, it's possible that Jesus would have us lay down our lives in some way, shape, or form 
right here in living out our daily lives. We think about that friend who says, I'm thinking that God might be calling me to this job across the state. Like, what do I do? I want to make the right decision. I mean, it's possible in light of this Matthew 10 kind of principle, it's possible that God may very well be calling that person over to the other side of the state to work a job, to uproot her family, to, to, to put down some new roots, only a year later to find out she's fired. And, and digging up the roots again and, and the new school system and the new church and the new friends and then moving back home, feeling like a failure. And not starting out from, from square one, but having lost six months, having lost maybe six years, starting out from like square negative one and realizing like, well, what was that all about? And thinking, considering the possibility that it may very well be God's will to transplant someone only for a little while because maybe only just to show someone all the way across the state, that, that, friends, this is how a Christian deals with adversity. And having never seen any of the fruits of any of the conversations that are had over there at all. I mean, we have to grant it to God that whatever we see, whether we deem it a success, whether we deem it a failure, we just don't know what his plan is. And he could be calling us to lay down any amount of success, any amount of, uh, of self-esteem or networks or any, right where we are. However, there's some good news this morning. <laughs> Is that Jesus gives us this pep talk. Well, he gives his disciples this pep talk, and we kind of read ourselves in. He's like, okay, this is a hard one to hear. I get that. So let me share some other words. Only a few verses later, in verse 28, Jesus' pep talk, uh, it says, Do not be afraid. Uh, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's like, Jesus, this is the worst halftime pep talk that we've ever heard. What are you, where are you going with this? In a sense, Jesus says, okay, this is a difficult word. Uh, knowing that God may ask you to lay down everything exactly where you are at any time, and, and that the will of God isn't safe but is risky and potentially could cost you everything, it's a difficult word. But Jesus says, but, but, but don't worry, it's not like the people around you or it's not like the, the, the circumstances around you are what you should be worried about. What you should be worried about is God, right? It's not like this temporary stuff is what should keep you so, so concerned. It's the eternal stuff after that. And I think, how would this come as an encouragement to the disciples, I mean, how would they hear the first part about this and then hear the second part and be like, okay, now I'm jazzed to get going on the mission. Now I'm ready to be, to be obedient to you, Jesus, no matter what it costs me. I think, like, how in the world would it be an encouragement to the disciples except unless they have already laid down their lives to Christ? Except unless in following after him, They've already made a, made a conscious decision that everything that I have and with every part of my body and soul, I am in service to Christ. 
And, and so when I hear of the words, don't be afraid of them. After all, the worst thing they can do is kill you. And I think that's fine because I've already died with Christ. Like mentally, maybe emotionally, spiritually, like I'm done. I'm out. Everything else is just like details for God to clean up. Because, because I am so singularly focused on eternity that like all of the temporal stuff in the meantime doesn't even register. Like, like it's not even a blip on the radar because of the focus of God. That's where, that's where the disciples are in following after him. I give an example, uh, again, missionary. Uh, John Patton was a Scottish uh, preacher in 1800s, uh, mid-1800s or so. And he's a, he's a good preacher. It was a successful church, but things were going like really, really well. He was a young guy, especially for his age. So uh, he decides that God is calling him. He, he generally feels uh, God tugging at him uh, to go to the New Hebrides Islands in the, in the Pacific Ocean. Now, it's kind of like world geography. Scotland is on the Atlantic, not the Pacific. So it's like a long ways away, right? Uh, but he, he's telling people, this is, this is where God is calling me to go. And people like, can't understand him. You've got a good thing going here. Why would you leave? And he's like, I really think this is God's will for me. And as he continues to talk about how this is maybe God's plan unfolding in his life, and as he's discerning it kind of with other people, they come to find out that, that again, this, this island group, the New Hebrides, is, is very hostile to outsiders. In fact, they actually, they actually have a reputation for, for cannibalism for outsiders who come in. And so that doesn't sit well with his church. So there's this guy who was arguing with John about like, why is it that you think that you, that you should go there? And he's saying, well, I, I think they need to hear about, hear about the gospel. And as John sort of says it in his memoirs, he goes, it seems like his main argument was, yeah, but cannibalism. <laughs> and so John said, like, this is how, I'm paraphrasing, okay? It was all, like, Scottish and, you know, 1800s. But he paraphrases back to him, and he points out the obvious between the two of them. He says, sir, you're, you're very old. You're very old, and pretty soon, in not so many years, you and I both know that you're going to be put into the ground, and worms are going to devour your body, and the islanders may devour mine. I just want to ask you a question. When Jesus comes back and the resurrection of the dead happens and we're raised to new glorious bodies in heaven, does it matter if it's cannibals or worms. And he walked away saying, after that, what else could I say? Here is a guy, John Patton, who's, who's so singularly focused on the eternal mission of God that he's like, my life? What's the worst that could happen? Death? It's like I've already died. Everything else is just, it's just God cleaning up the details. And as Jesus goes on, God has a pretty fantastic plan for the details. Listen, uh, verse 29. He goes, uh, Jesus continues by saying, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? It's a great deal on sparrows. Who's a sparrow guy? Yet not, not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You're, you're, you are worth more than many sparrows. 
the details that Jesus communicates in God's sovereign plan. It's like, hey, listen, sparrows are almost worth nothing, two for a penny, but, but when they fall, like they don't even fall outside of God's plan. You know, God, God even knows like how many hairs are on your head. It's incredible. Like this mysterious kind of plan that God is unfolding. Do, do you realize that the level of God's control, of, of God's sovereignty over the situation I mean, we look back, and I just I shared with you a bunch of missionary stories already about the Batak people, about John Patton, and you could just Google it and find out incredible more. Amy Carmichael, right? There's uh, David uh, Long. I mean, the list goes on and on and on about these incredible missionary people. And I want to say, it's possible. It's possible that these people weren't the heroes that we're all supposed to emulate. It's possible that that God doesn't need another missionary hero. In fact, I would go so far as to say, what makes these stories unique isn't the level of which they were laying down their own lives or the number of people that, that came. What makes these stories unique is that we were simply able to see the redemption come. The level of detail that Christ mentions the Father has, not even two sparrows falling, counting the hairs on our heads. I mean, I just wonder if it's possible that God is executing this plan of redemption with each one of our stories, whether it's if we're called to the to the northern Sumatra, Central uh, Asia, South, or Central America, Southeast Asia, or whether we're called to stay right here and get your kids to school on time or make lunches or to be nice to your husband or wife or, or to serve somebody in need, to be kind when, when everything inside of you wants to go the opposite way. I just wonder if, if so often we like think about, about these acts of, of Christian obedience, right? And we say, you know, they're, not, they're not as worthy, they're not as, they're not as heroic in the faith simply because most often we haven't, seen that, we haven't seen God redeem and reclaim them yet. But we will. This... This is the gospel that God makes beautiful work out of ugly things, out of ugly experiences like us. This is the gospel when we look at, at all of the suffering, all of the hardship, all the trials, all of the evil that is sent up towards God's way. He has a way of, of, of putting it all together and says, and says, yes, but, but, yes, but, just wait until I'm done with it. And then all of a sudden you see a picture of, of, of a, an instrument where, where God died and he said, now it's, a, now it's a symbol of hope, it's a symbol of love, it's a symbol of joy. This is the gospel that God is redeeming your experiences. He's making meaning out of them, even when we hope, even, even when we can't see it. I want to end with, with one more missionary story. Indulge me. This one's a little different, though. Uh, this is a story of Janessa Wells, who graduated from college, so probably like a few people, about two in the room, and she's like mid-20s, she thinks to herself, these are the things that I want in life. I want to get a job. I've been trained to be a music teacher. I want to get married. I want to have a family. I want to do all these things. 
But she says, what I want even more than all of those good things is to tell people about Jesus. So she bounces around for a while before landing in a refugee camp in Jordan. And she's doing work in, a, in there in the surrounding areas, trying to tell people about Jesus. And what's so remarkable, I find, about her story isn't the number of people that she won over to Christ. I think in a very remarkably unremarkable kind of way, it was how she died. Just before she passed away, she sent an email to her parents back in the States. It's on the flow sheet, part of it anyway. And she has this realization as a 20-something. She says, it seems that everything we do comes down to one thing, his glory. I pray that all our lives reflect that. It's not the glory in which you die. It's not the glory of getting to say that you won over huge groups of people in the tribe across the world somewhere. She says it's not about our own glory at all. This one thing is about his glory. That's it. She died in a traffic accident a week after she wrote this. She wasn't a great Christian martyr by any means. She died probably in kind of a way lots of people die. It's unremarkable in every way, except for how she lived. This one litmus test of which I live and make decisions by. It's his glory, not mine. So I don't think that bothered her. I want to come back to the friend asking the question about whether or not to take the job across the state, whether or not to get married or to break up, to take the job or leave the job, whatever the question is. I don't think it's about, I want to do God's will because I want to know what the right decision is. I don't think that's the way of phrasing it. I think the question that we should ask and we should ask this week is, what's going to bring God glory? Just leave it at that. This week, friends, how are we going to bring God glory with our radically ordinary lives? I invite you to stand up. Let's pray together. Let's ask him for help in that. God in heaven, you have called some of us to be inspirational. You've called some of us to go across the world. God, you've called some of us to be inspirational right here in Kentwood and Grand Rapids. God, uh, uh, teach us, Lord, uh, how to bring you glory in our everyday lives. Uh, What it looks like to share our faith with unbelievers, not necessarily around the globe, but maybe in our backyard. God, we want to see more and more people come to you. Most of all, we want, to, we want to bring you glory and honor and praise. In your son's name we pray. Amen.